Yo, what's up guys? Welcome. Welcome current listeners, new listeners. This is episode 12 of WFS, The Will Ford Show. Happy Friday, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Let's go ahead and kick the show off. We've got a lot going on. The NFL Combine is going on. That means the draft is coming up. Some terrific performances in the NBA. Big news in the NCAA. Let's let's jump right into the show. Let's kick the show off uh, on a bit of a sad and unfortunate note. Hall of Fame Bills quarterback Jim Kelly, his oral cancer, has returned. And he will undergo treatment. Uh, he released a statement. And here it is. I'm going to read it to you guys. Quote, the oral cancer we hoped would be gone forever has returned. Although I was shocked and deeply saddened to receive this news, I know that God is with me. I continuously talk about the four F's, faith, family, friends, and fans. With all of you by my side, we will fight and win this battle together. Staying Kelly tough and trusting God will carry us through this difficult time. This is very unfortunate, very sad. So it's it's just so heartbreaking because this man and this family have have went through a lot with this cancer, and it, and it sucks for anyone to have cancer. It's horrible, but for you to get it multiple times, that's just very unfortunate. So I wish nothing but him and his family the best and I just hope that he is able to come back strong for this very unfortunate but we will stay Kelly tough with him in his fight alright so we've had some terrific NBA performances this year some some outstanding basketball has been being played lately and I want to tell you which four have been the best performances this year, and I'm going to tell you which one I think is the absolute best performance of the season. We had Joel Embiid against the Lakers with 46 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists, and 7 blocks. And by the way, those 46 points were only, it was only in 20 shot attempts. That's an incredible stat line. Boogie Cousins had 44 points, 20 rebounds, and 10 assists versus the Bulls. Anytime a big man has a triple-double, that's incredible. But to have a 40-20-10 triple-double, that is incredible. That's just outstanding. And then LeBron had 57.7 assists and 11 rebounds early in November against the Wizards. And anytime you you hit the 50 mark, I mean, that's a terrific night. And he still had seven assists, so it wasn't like he was just shooting the ball. But the best performance of the year, my opinion, James Harden had a 60-point triple-double. 60 points, 11 assists, and 10 rebounds. Versus Orlando. This is absolutely the best performance. Number one, because we've never seen a triple-double 
before with 60 points. There's never been one ever in NBA history. Number two, every one of those 60 points mattered. Like he had the last five of his 60 points, 55 through 60, were needed to win the game. Those were huge points to win them the game versus Orlando. And plus the, the points accounted for. Like he had 11 assists with 60 points. Like he's got to account for at least 80 points there. Let's just say those those 11 assists are two pointers. That's That's 22 points. That's at least 82 points accounted for. To me, this game is almost, is almost, if not more impressive than Kobe's 81. And I think Kobe's 81 was the best scoring display of all time. I wouldn't say Wilt's is because he took three overtimes to do it. In Kobe's game, he took, it, he had 81 in four quarters in regulation, and it was a close game for most of the game up until halfway through the fourth quarter when they blew it open. So I think Kobe's is the most impressive scoring display of all time, but in terms of efficiency and, and points accounted for, Harden's got to account for at least 82. Kobe had 81 points and two assists in his game. And if you do the math on that, that's at the minimum 85 points. I would think Harden has at least accounted for that, probably more though. That's that's incredible. No player ever has had a 60-point triple-double. That is definitely the best performance of the year this year in the NBA. And if I had to rank the other ones, I would put I would put Boogie Cousins second. No, sorry, I'll put LeBron second because anytime you have over 50, that's incredible. He still had seven assists, so he still accounted for a lot of points. So LeBron second, Boogie third with a 40, 20, and 10. Those are unreal numbers. And and Bede fourth, like it, it almost seems disrespectful putting him at four, but there were just so many great performances. It's, that's outstanding. I, I just I'm in awe because we've never seen this kind of basketball before. The talent level has never been this high in basketball. It's amazing the era we now live in. All right, I want to move on. I'm going to shift gears over to the NCAA, specifically basketball. There's a big corruption scandal with money going on. And this all started when Sean Miller, the coach of the Arizona Wildcats, was accused of paying $100,000 to DeAndre Ayton to get him to come to Arizona. And this was all found out through FBI wiretaps, heard on on record him discussing paying DeAndre Ayton. And, and other schools, several other schools, a list of 25, at least 25 schools are involved in this sort of behavior as well. Schools like Duke, 
North Carolina, Texas, Kentucky, Virginia, Notre Dame, Xavier, Utah, South Carolina, Seton Hall, Louisville, Kansas, Michigan State, and the list just goes on and on and on. But 25 schools are listed in this report. These are 25 of the best teams in the country. Not to mention, there's, there's got to be a lot more than this. There has to be. And I think the one thing that this proves is this, this to me, undermines the, the recruiting ability of all-time coaches like John Calipari and, and Mike Krzyzewski. Like, I would have said that those two guys were the best recruiters in basketball and getting guys to buy into their programs. But basically, Krzyzewski and Calipari were paying them to buy into their programs. They were, they were basically making them, giving them an offer they couldn't refuse to, to come to their school. And it's no secret that that players get paid in the NCAA. Of course they do. They should get paid, by the way. They, they generate so much revenue for colleges. People fill the arenas to watch some of these marquee players, some of these future NBA players. It, and, and it's a shame that the NCAA can make money off of the players, but the players can't might make money off of themselves, off their name. And the NCAA is meant to be a non-profit organization, yet they run it like it's a drug cartel. There's money flying everywhere. They make millions of dollars on the NCAA tourney. Those schools get so much money. It's no wonder why we're seeing so many of these schools paying players. They make so much money, and they use that money to attract recruits. And I think a way to solve this is to get the NBA more involved. Create a farm system of some sort, like in the MLB, like how you have the minor leagues, you have the single A, double A, triple A. You got to create farm systems so you can develop these young players and give them more experience before they come to the NBA. And I get we have the NBA G, G League, but that's, I, I don't like that because you still, you get drafted into the NBA and then you get sent down there if you're not good enough. And usually the players that get sent down are the one-and-done guys. And this scandal honestly should put an end to the one-and-done rule. I honestly think that players are better. Play the crop of players in the NBA is so much better when players stay in college. It was like that in the 80s and 90s with Jordan. With Michael Jordan, that, that group of players... In college basketball, it was incredible because they all stayed. They, they have to stay at least two years, I think, before they make the jump to the NBA.
it's, the crop of players would just be so much better. And like, look at Lonzo Ball. He had one, he played one year at UCLA, and it took him 25, 30 games to get acclimated to the NBA, to the speed, to the physicality of it. And Kyle Kuzma played all four years at Utah. And look at him. He came in and contributed right away. He's got an NBA-ready body. Lonzo wasn't ready physically. That's the same thing with Josh Hart on the Lakers. Four years at Villanova, NBA-ready body. He didn't exactly contribute right away. They didn't, they didn't really give him his opportunity at that time when, when the season started. But he has contributed very well. Very well. And if it weren't for IT being there and him actually getting hurt also, he was a starting shooting guard before IT came to the Lakers. He is a great young player. Like This proves that the, the longer players stay in college, the more ready they are for the NBA physically. Physically, they're able to keep up with the pace. They're able to body up with people. I think we need to incorporate a minimum two-year stay in college and play like like college football. You have to stay at least two seasons. And another thing that came up with this is Jay Williams, college basketball analyst, came up with a suggestion, excuse me, that players should boycott the Final Four. I think this is I think this is ridiculous. I I understand it in principle that the NCAA makes so much money off the tourney, they make millions of dollars, and especially off the final four, that boycotting it uh keeps them from making that money. But there's nothing in it for the players. It doesn't really change anything the player for the players. The players aren't making anything. And plus, it's their shining moment. You really only get one opportunity. If you reach it to the Final Four, that's likely the only opportunity you're going to get because players usually leave after a year. That team may go back to the Final Four the next year, but any one individual on a team usually only gets one chance. So I don't, I don't like the idea. I understand the principle of the idea from a money standpoint and how much the NCAA makes off of it. But just in terms of overall sensibility of it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And now we're going to shift gears segue to the NFL combine. The NFL combine is underway and scouts are evaluating all of these star prospects, we've got a great crop of quarterbacks this year, I think, and and some great running backs, great receivers. It's really a loaded draft class all around, defensively, offensively. But I think the combine lacks a lot of credibility. I really do. I, I don't like the drills, a lot of the drills anyways, that are that are used in this combine. Like there's a history of players who've had bad combines and have been great players, Hall of Famers. 
and then players who've had good combines and are busts. So I'm going to I'm going to tell you guys a list of combine drills that I think should be added to the NFL combine. One thing that I think would r- really be interesting and could really it would just be a great thing to watch is quarterback drills with defensive pressure. Because right now the quarterback drills are just simple pitch and catch. You just it's simple timing routes, there's no defense, there's no pressure on the quarterback. So it doesn't show anything about how a quarterback can manage a game situation. If you have defensive pressure on the quarterback, it you know, it creates a hurry, it forces a quarterback to roll out of the pocket. Yet it's the quarterback's forced to hit receivers in stride with a rusher in their face, and obviously the rusher's not going to hit them. They'll just get close enough, and if they can get a hand on them, then plays over. But doing that, you'll have a far better idea of what a quarterback can do when the offense isn't on schedule. You get a far better idea, and then. Also, receiver route drills with coverage. So it it makes things more interesting for the quarterbacks and receivers too. It it tests a quarterback's timing and accuracy, obviously. It tests the receiver's ability to get open with the press coverage or multiple different coverages, maybe if you want to do that. And it also, you can evaluate defensive back's ability to cover also. You can evaluate three different positions in one drill. And I know that can be a lot for scouts, but so what? It's a much better it's a much better system to evaluate talent. It's much better than just doing the simple backpedal drills and and simple pitch and catch with with calculated routes. And then to th- you could also throw the rusher in there too. So you have like a, a five Mississippi before a rusher comes at you where you, where you have to get rid of the ball. So I, I think it, it just shows and measures talent a lot better than just doing the simple stuff. Like you got to put pressure on a quarterback and see how he handles the situation. You got to put pressure on the receivers and see if they can get open. You got to put pressure, pressures on the corners to see if they can cover guys. And manage their assignments. And then if you want to flip the receiver drills for them to get open and catch balls, you now flip it for defensive backs. Like in, instead of doing just backpedaling, instead of doing the backpedals and shuffles and then you sprint up and catch a ball and, and what have you, you make a defensive back cover a corner while they're backpedaling, or sorry, not a corner, a receiver while they're backpedaling. You make them cover an aggressive man. You make them see if they can pattern match a route all the way through. It's a far better indicator of defensive back talent. I just think the, the combine is just, it doesn't show talent. It really doesn't. 
Like I said, there's been busts with great combines. And players with bad combines who have been outstanding. And then another interesting drill, again to do with defensive backs and receivers, is to make them work in the slot. So basically you line up with two wide receivers, one on the outside, one on the slot, and then corner covering both. And then you force the corners to make them cover crossing routes, combination routes, double slants, switch releases downfield. And you test their coverage knowledge. You test what they're be what they're able to do in a clustered situation because it can get clogged up when you do the, the pick plays and and the double slants. And also too it affects the receiver's ability to get open. You gotta get open. And the quarterback quarterback's gotta be able to read the coverage. If it's man, if it's a cover two. So really it's testing these players and seeing if they know how to handle being pressured. And then a, a drill, the 40-yard dash. The 40-yard dash is a great drill for faster players, like your corners, your receivers, quarterbacks, running backs, linebackers. But it doesn't work. It's not a good, accurate measurement of how fast a defensive lineman is or offensive lineman. Like the 40 yard dash is designed. It, it's 40 yards because that's the average punt distance that players need to cover. But it's, you rarely see offensive linemen and defensive linemen, linemen cover punts. So they don't need to run that far. Defensive linemen have quick bursts off the line of scrimmage and a lot of power. So I think a drill that would be better for linemen, or maybe even some linebackers that are bigger, is to do a 10-yard dash. Because these players need, in their game situations, need a quick burst into instant power off the line of scrimmage. And then what you could do off of that is for offensive linemen, you make them transition into blocking, like blocking a pad or something. And then for defensive linemen, you make a transition into block shedding and see what they can do. You, you obviously time their 10-yard dash and then see their transition of power to shed blocks or to make a block. And then I think something else that would be great is we all know the Wonderlick test. It's been around since the early 1900s. Tests your problem-solving ability and things like that. It's got to do with real-world problems and stuff. But instead of making it based off of real-world problems, you make it more football-specific. So basically, you make a player memorize plays from a specific offense or defense, specific schemes, make them know what, ass what assignments are, like who, who has what assignment in a certain scheme, 
whether it be blocking or blitz pickup or a route or something, you can uh, send them up to a chalkboard and make them write out a play, what it's supposed to look like. You can make them recite the plays. And that just shows their true knowledge of football. And if they understand different offensive and defensive schemes. And then another thing, this one's not necessarily as important as the other ones in measuring talent. But I think it's, it's something noteworthy to say the least about it. There's several good agility drills. They have the, the vertical leap. They have the broad jump. Those are all great, great drills. But the strength test, I think, is it's poorly set up. Like the 40-yard dash is meant for the fast players and not for the defensive linemen and offensive linemen. But the, the bench press, that's set up for guys like linebackers, like some running backs, like linemen who are really, really strong. But it's extremely unfair to the 180-pound speedy slot receivers because, really, you're barking up the wrong tree if you're disappointed that a 180-pound receiver only gets five reps on the 225-pound bench press, but a linebacker gets 32 reps. So it it's just not accurate. What you could do is you add some cardio workouts, maybe like squats, hang clean, something like that. And you make them perform to failure in multiple ways. And really, it can, it can coordinate to on-field skills. And it tests their true fitness. So it's not as important as the talent measures as far as like block shedding and, and throwing under pressure and getting opening off of routes and covering people in pursuit and things like that. But it tests an overall player's true fitness level. And then lastly, this isn't this is another one that's not super important, but I think it I think for drills like the 40-yard dash and and certainly some of the throwing drills and and things like that, make players do some of the drills in pads and helmets. That's how they play football. They don't play in spandex shorts and shirts. Test their movement in pads. Because speed drills can be misleading without pads. Like Honestly, I believe Ezekiel Elliott is faster in shoulder pads than he is in just spandex shorts. I really do. His combine was, his 40-yard dash in the combine was 4.47. But he is a lot faster than that if you watch him in a game. So again, that's not super important, but I think it's relevant because players play in pads. They don't play two-hand touch and spandex shorts. So I think if you don't want to put the pants on, sure, but at least like have quarterbacks wear the shoulder pads and, and helmets and stuff and, 
I, I think it's a, an extremely relevant thing. All right. So now, since the combine is happening right now, that means the NFL draft is coming up. And I am really excited for that. The Browns GM John Dorsey said he is fielding offers for the first pick in the draft. Now, all teams that are in the top five or six picks will, will field offers for them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to trade the pick. But in this case, I think the Browns might because you, it, it's going to be a while before the draft. It's over a month away. And if you're saying that stuff now, that leads me to believe that you almost want nothing to do with the first pick. You can get a lot for it if you trade it away. And by trading it, you can possibly go all in on Kirk Cousins. I mean, you may not even have to trade it to get Kirk Cousins, to be honest. Just don't draft a quarterback at number one. If you're going to go all in on Kirk Cousins, draft Saquon Barkley at number one. Because Saquon Barkley is obviously going to take a lot of pressure off of Kirk Cousins like that, like Zeke did for Dak Prescott. So that would be outstanding. And if you sign Kirk Cousins and you have a good draft, you get Barkley at one, number four, that would be an interesting pick if they decide not to go with the quarterback at one. And not at four. I don't know who they would take. I feel like they would take an offensive lineman. Maybe like Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame. Guard. Because their defense is fine. Their front seven is pretty good. They need some corner help. So maybe they reach a little on Denzel Ward. But I think, I think if you're going to go all in on Kirk Cousins, you definitely got to... Draft Barkley number one. And then if you don't go after Cousins, obviously Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen are number one are gonna be there for you. But if you think you can get him at four, I would draft Barkley at number one still. Because Barkley's not gonna be there at four. The Indianapolis Colts will take him. Heck, the Giants could even take him at two. So I wouldn't even risk it. I'd draft Barkley at one. And then if Darnold is there at four, take him. If Rosen's there, if both Rosen and him are there at four, I can't see that happening. Then pick your poison. Josh Allen's an option. He's a guy from Wyoming. He's similar to Carson Wentz in build. I like him. Baker Mayfield is another option. I'm not totally sold on him. Just... Just because he, his stats were inflated in college. He played in, in a conference with no defense at all. So I love his attitude, though. I, I love his confidence. It can be a little much at times, but overall it's, it's, it's fine. He would be a good player to have. But I'm interested to see what, they're, what the Browns do with number one and number four. And whether or not they decide to go all in on Kirk Cousins or not. Because right now, it, it feels like the Browns are close. 
It really does. I feel like they're close to figuring it out. John Dorsey's a great GM. If he drafts right, if he signs a quarterback or drafts one and then uses that money well, they can be a terrific team here in the next few years. And speaking of bad quarterback situations, the Broncos GM John Elway said he's going to keep trying to find a quarterback and he's not discouraged by recent swings and misses. So the Broncos have had one of the worst quarterback situations in the league in the last, I don't know, five years. Their really only great quarterback in recent memory has been Peyton Manning and he was kind of washed up except for a, a year or two. Osweiler is terrible. He had a good stretch in Peyton's last year when Peyton was hurt, but he is terrible. And for the record, the Texans saved Elway from making a terrible mistake by signing him. Elway wanted to sign him back, and the Texans signed Osweiler to a four-year, $72 million contract without even meeting face-to-face. Paxton Lynch can't even get on the field. He he's, he doesn't even understand play the, the playbook and audibles and and making reads at the line of scrimmage. He can't even do that. Trevor Simeon isn't bad for a seventh round pick. He really he really isn't. But I, he's certainly not a good quarterback. So it, it's unclear what they're going to do with their number five pick. I feel like Josh Allen would be a good fit at five if he's available or if if Darnold or Rosen happened to be available there. That would be a home run. But it's interesting because teams like the Jets and Ravens and Cardinals, they're all behind the Broncos and all of them are in need of a quarterback. Like Joe Flacco is on his way out. They could all leapfrog the Broncos and trade in front of them. And that can reduce the amount of available quarterbacks if that happens. Like virtually all of them will be gone. Darnold will be gone. Rosen will be gone. Baker will be gone. Allen would be gone if, let's say, the Browns take Darnold and then those other three teams take Baker, Rosen, and Allen. That leaves you with Lamar Jackson, which. He can be a very good quarterback in this league, but I don't I don't know if he fits in Denver. I really don't know if he fits in Denver. Plus, I don't trust LA drafting quarterbacks. He's missed horribly. I mean, apart from Simeon wasn't a bad choice in the seventh round, obviously, but he he whiffed on Paxton Lynch. There, people were saying Paxton Lynch was the best thing ever. You can't even get on the field. So I would consider trading back or maybe drafting a skill player. Maybe if they let Emmanuel Sanders go, you draft like Calvin Ridley. And I would I would think Elway would have better success going after a quarterback in free agency than drafting one. For sure. And reportedly, they're going all in on Kirk Cousins, or almost all in on Kirk Cousins. So, but if but if Cousins doesn't work out, 
here's an interesting option if Cousins doesn't work out. And long term, I don't think Cousins is going to be a it's, I don't think that's going to be great long term. Number one, he's going to eat up all of their salary. Two, their defense is getting old. So if the if they don't land Cousins in free agency, what about Teddy Bridgewater from Minnesota? They haven't the, the Vikings haven't committed to anyone yet. Case Keenum is even on the market. So and I wouldn't consider Sam Bradford. Sam Bradford's also on the market, but he is an injury waiting to happen. So I wouldn't go after him. But Teddy Bridgewater is young. He's coming off of injury. He hasn't played a lot recently. But, you know, once he goes through training camp and practice and plays a few games, he can be a very good quarterback. He was good in Minnesota for the few years he played before the injury. And Case Keenum is really, really good. And if they don't trade back, if if the Broncos don't trade back, if they were to somehow land Saquon Barkley, which I absolutely don't think he's going to fall past pick three, if you can somehow do that and have Bridgewater or Keenum or Kirk Cousins, that's a home run. And that's a Super Bowl team. So we'll see what happens with the draft. But some other news in the NFL, Ryan Shazier will not play in 2018. That's pretty unfortunate for him. One of the top linebackers in the league. But I didn't think he was going to play next year at all. And if he did, it would have been very late in the year. And by that time, I wouldn't even mess with it. It's a very unfortunate injury, and it's a very hard injury to come back from. It's He needed spinal stabilization surgery. Like That's tough, man. That's really tough. Honestly, I have my doubts that he's ever going to play again. And if he does play again, I don't think it'll be at an elite level. Like Players can come back from torn ACLs, torn Achilles, and and still be their old self to some degree. But a spinal injury, that affects your entire body, the, the way you move. I don't know if he'll play again. And if he does, I don't think he's going to be as good. It's really unfortunate for him and unfortunate for the Steelers because the Steelers could have used him in the playoffs this year. The Steelers may have beaten Jacksonville if Shazier plays. And speaking of Jacksonville, Blake Bortles just signed a three-year, $54 million deal to stay with the Jags through 2020. Now, this takes them out of the Kirk Cousins sweepstakes. I had them at number one on my list. So that removes them from that. And what's the math on this? Around, around $16 million a year? Is that the math on that? Yeah, a little more than 16 million, about 17 million a year. Actually, I think that's 18. Regardless, that's a, that's the market on him. 
I, I think that's a fair price. He, and he played outstanding in the playoffs. He's He absolutely deserves to be a starter in this league, without a question. Kirk Cousins is obviously better. Kirk Cousins can take that team to a Super Bowl. Well, actually, Blake Bortles can even take that team to a Super Bowl. They were, they were this close to going to a Super Bowl and beating the New England Patriots. So Kirk Cousins can obviously put you over the top and get you there, but Blake Bortles, I think, is capable as well. And then something I think is funny. <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys are going to be featured in Amazon's docu-series All or Nothing. Spoiler, it's probably nothing. Uh, I had to steal that line from Peyton Manning's SB's opening monologue. That was, that was just funny, talking about the Rams. I, I thought that was a hilarious line. Uh... But yeah, honestly, it is probably nothing in all seriousness because they always seem to disappoint when when it really matters. They played great in the regular season for the most part, aside from this season, but there was a lot going on this year. They usually do great, and then when it comes to winning a playoff game or winning a game to get into the playoffs, they always find a way to get in the way of themselves. It never fails. So, to answer the question all or nothing, my guess is it's more than likely nothing. And then some more news with the Patriots. Rob Gronkowski is expected to return next season. He contemplated retiring like 10 minutes after the Super Bowl. I didn't believe he was actually going to retire. But with him back, they're getting their best player back aside from Tom Brady. And just think, if he had left, if he had not come back, they have no backup plan at tight end. Like They have Martellus Bennett and Dwayne Allen, but Martellus Bennett is... Older now. He's of advanced age. Dwayne Allen isn't very serviceable. So now with Gronk back, that's obviously great for them because they had no backup. They had no backup plan unless they drafted someone. And now Brady's going to be loaded with all of his skill positions this year, barring any injury. He's going to have Edelman back, he'll have Gronk back. He's going to still have Brandon Cooks, he'll have Amendola, and he'll have Chris Hogan. That, that's a heck of a lineup. Honestly, that might be Brady's most talented group of skill, skill positions. Maybe of his whole career. And they've got some talented running backs, too. A goal line running back in Mike Gillisley. Deion Lewis and James White are great receiving backs. And Rex Burkhead can run in catch this is I think by far Brady's best supporting cast ever 
And I feel like the Patriots, I feel like they feel like they have something to prove this year. After losing the Super Bowl. Like, remember how they came out after Deflategate? Brady missed those first four games, and then he went on a tear. And they they won the Super Bowl, coming back 28-3. to That's how I expect them to come out this year. Hungry for revenge. And I expect them to come out like they did after Deflategate. I, I, that's what I expect from them. And obviously, they're the early favorites to win the Super Bowl again, according to Vegas, which isn't surprising. But I am interested to see when Tom Brady will finally hit his decline. I'm really interested to see. And it, right now, it doesn't look like it's anytime soon. I mean, he like they lost the Super Bowl, and you might think, oh, Brady's done. He threw for 500 yards. 500 yards and... I think it was three touchdowns, no picks. So, obviously no signs signs of slowing down. And his, his legacy wasn't hurt at all by losing that game. Win or lose, no change in legacy. Tom Brady's still the greatest of all time. Some people may not think so. Yes, they cheated once or twice, spy gate, deflate gate. Maybe they get the fair shake on some of the play calls, on the, on the calls I mean by referees. But you got to be able to get to eight Super Bowls is incredible. And I know this is kind of off topic for the Patriots season, but there's my view on that. And then Odell Beckham Jr. wants to set a new market for receivers in free agency, he is seeking a base salary of $20 million a year. Now, Odell is easily top three receiver in the league, easily third. If you want to say he's second, I'll listen to that. But Antonio Brown and Julio Jones are one-two for me, then Odell. And I wouldn't pay Odell Beckham $20 million. I probably wouldn't pay him $18 million. I think 16, 17 is a good number. The reason why I wouldn't pay Odell $20 million is he's coming off an injury. He just had a bunch of ankle problems. So I'm not, I'm not paying him not knowing how he's going to be physically. And if you pay him that much money, that eats up a wild percentage of your cap space. So that affects your ability to improve the roster. And quite frankly, there's a lot more issues that need to be addressed than paying Odell Beckham Jr. Like he's still on his rookie deal. Like the offensive line needs addressed. It's atrocious. Orleans Darkwall is serviceable at running back, but he's in, he's inconsistent. And if they want to go Saquon Barkley at number two? That would be outstanding. Or if they want to maybe find a guy in free agency. I don't know what guys are available, but they need to improve at running back. And a quarterback for the future also. They don't really have anyone. Davis Webb couldn't even make it on the active roster until like the final game of the year when Eli wasn't playing. 
then Geno Smith is trash. So if they want to invest that second pick in a quarterback like Rosen or Darnold or, or someone who's there, that would be great. Maybe they go after a guy in free agency. I don't. They're not going to go after Kirk Cousins, obviously. I see them sticking with Eli at least one more year. And then on top of the roster changes, he's still on his rookie deal, like I said. And when it's up, why not tag him? Why not franchise tag Odell? Lots of great players get tagged. It's not a bad thing. Le'Veon got tagged. Kirk Cousins got tagged twice. Le'Veon Bell, I think, is going to get tagged again. It's not a bad thing to franchise tag him. And it also it gives you a year to see where he's at physically. And I understand that Odell has definitely outperformed his his rookie de rookie deal. But it's a rookie deal. The rookies aren't meant to make that much money. Good for him that he outperformed his deal. And I'm glad and I want to reward great performances. But you got to do it sensibly. You can't just go throwing a bunch of money at a, at a guy who's, even though he's the best player on your team, you've got to be able to spread the money around and make your team better as a whole. Like the sum of the whole is greater than its individual parts. Odell Beckham can win you a game, but you need help to win a championship. You need an offensive line. You need a serviceable quarterback. Eli has never been too hot on Eli, but he's okay. So I don't want to listen to this nonsense about paying him $20 million because it just doesn't make sense right now. It doesn't make sense. And then... Another big thing in the NFL right now, they are doing their league meetings for rule changes. And two, two very controversial rules have been discussed. Number one, the catch rule. This is, this catch rule like I don't even know where to go with this because I don't I don't know what a catch is anymore. But they determined not too long ago, about a, uh, I think it was a few days ago, a week ago, that Dez's catch against Green Bay that was ruled incomplete in the playoffs in 2014, they ruled that that should have been a catch. And the same thing with Calvin Johnson's catch a few years before against the Bears. And just think, now they're finally realizing that what plays should be catches and what shouldn't be. Like, that Des Bryant play, that, that determined who went to the NFC Championship, that play. That cost the Cowboys an NFC Championship berth, their first NFC Championship since they won their last Super Bowl in 96. I mean, come on. They had it right the first time. 
So obviously the rule needs simplified because I I don't understand what surviving the ground means or what the process of the catch means or anything like that because the rule was so inconsistent. Like I was so confused at times on what things were and what things weren't. I would think that this catch is complete, but really, but they ruled it incomplete. And then I would think this one's complete and they ruled it the other way. Like, goes both ways. So they gotta make it simple. If it looks like a catch, it's a catch. And then, if you catch the ball and you take a few steps and get hit and the ball comes out, it's a fumble. It's a fumble. You can't go back and look and say, oh, is it incomplete? No. And doing this would make replay run a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently, too. It should eliminate some of these really long conversations about a catch or not a catch. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't look at a catch sometimes. But really, it should come down to does he does he have possession and do does he get two feet down and where is he at in relation to the out of bounds line and things like that does he get two feet down in bounds and whatever all i know is they just need to make it more simplified and i just i hope it's a lot easier for the fans at home to follow heck even the commentators in the commentary booth al michaels and chris collinsworth were confused all year and those guys are smart guys. Those are smart, smart football guys. They had no idea what was going on. They had no idea what was, what was going on all season, especially in the Super Bowl. They didn't know if the Zach Ertz one was a touchdown or not. They didn't know what, if the Corey Clement one was. They thought that one was incomplete, and they ruled it complete. And then they figured they would do the same with Zach Ertz, but they just don't know what to say anymore because they, they don't know. They just don't know. So they just they got to make it more simple. And then another big rule is the pass interference rule. And they talk about this rule almost every year, but nothing really ever gets done about it. But they're considering changing all pass interference calls to 15-yard penalties instead of spot foul penalties. Now there's pros and cons to this. The pros being it, it keeps defenses from being completely destroyed on one play because a quarterback can just launch it up 60 yards to try to draw a penalty and then you get 60 yards on one play. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. And then if you eliminate that and make it a 15-yard penalty, it, it completely takes out the massive momentum swings. Like in Jacksonville versus... New England in the AFC Championship, Brady threw one up like 60 yards to Cooks before the first half ended. The ball wasn't even close. It was uncatchable to start with. And Boye, it was questionable on whether or not he forced him out of bounds or if he actually made contact with him. But they ruled it spot foul, like 60 yards down the field. Touchdown that possession. And that keeps the game close with the Jaguars, and then they end up going on to win it. So it would eliminate 
the the massive momentum swings, and I am all for that because I think it's totally unfair on defenses where, like, sometimes you, your feet just get tangled up. You're just running, and it's not even your fault. Your feet just get tangled, and they throw a flag. So it, it's really unfair on the defense. And the only con to this rule is if defensive backs know they're beat, they can just purposely hold or interfere, knowing they'll only get a 15-yard penalty off of it. So I guess there's that drawback, but really is anyone in that moment going to think, oh, it's just 15 yards? I don't know. I don't know. But this rule, if it's changed to this, would line up with college, and I think it's a great rule. I am, I am definitely for this. Because it eliminates the massive momentum swings. And the only con is that players could purposely hold, but I, I just don't know if in the, in the moment you're going to actually think of that. So we'll see what happens. I really hope they, they clean up the rule book, though. All right, guys, that's it for me. Follow me on Twitter at The Will Ford Show. The rate and review the show on iTunes. Please do that. that. That helps. Any little bit helps. Share this podcast with people you know, your friends, coworkers, anyone. I, I don't care. It's free. Why not? Go ahead and do it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. It's WFS. <laughs>